Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me today is James Coons of Modern Day Debate. He was with us last week. You're not watching the same video. Um, and what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about some things that James has learned or noticed, uh, some notes perhaps that he's taken about how Christians and atheists function in debates after, well, first of all, James, welcome to the show. And how many debates are we at right now, roughly? My pleasure to be here. I think that right now it says maybe like 800s, 890. We've deleted a number of them, though. So I'd say we're, we're for sure in the 900s in terms of what we have done. 900 different debates? Which is crazy, yeah. It's that, is, a, that is really hard to imagine. How many a week are you up to now? I would say sometimes, depending on the week, it could be as many as like four. Uh, more commonly, probably two or three. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to get new things out of you each time so that the audience who only ever really sees you host and moderate uh, can know who you are. So one one last question about you as a person. What is your favorite style of music or if you have a favorite band or something? Yeah, I probably what I listen to most would probably be rock. I like to listen to rock like early 2000s, late 90s. That's like when I really got into rock. And well, that's me. I listen to that when I was a so that's like the glory days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, dogs or cats? That's a good question for a debate guy. I, it's really hard to pick. No, you I, have uh, to, really, you, you're not allowed to sit on the fence, James. Boy, I mean, then I, you know, I have to go with dogs. They're so loyal. So. And they're so appreciative. They just love their owner. And yeah. very clearly they're much, more as opposed special. to cats, obviously. So, um, all right. Uh, but well, that's a good question. Have you ever done a debate on dogs and cat dogs or cats? It's a subjective debate, yeah. but have you ever done one? That'd be, uh, that'd be an interesting one. We haven't done it yet. Okay. Uh, all right. You have learned uh, some things. I, I, I was blown away, and maybe this is one of them that you're thinking of, but last week you mentioned something that you picked up on about how Christians and atheists are different in what they prefer about a debate. You said that uh, Christians tend to prefer formal debates, and atheists tend to prefer back and forth. And this may make sense of why you pretty much do opening statements and then back and forth usually is that isn't that what you do basically right yeah i think that's absolutely true i think why that is i'm not sure i think that christians do on like the big five personality traits which are kind of like the most conventional popular way of measuring personality among psychologists christians christians are a little bit more agreeable and mm. i kind of wonder if so one thing I would just say is I would highly encourage Christians to stick with a structured format where you have strictly equal time. Usually the Christian is kind of deferential and kind of like, oh, you know, I want to care for the other person. And so I'm willing to defer to them on the format. But for some reason, I would say, no, Christians, if you want to compete in debate, more formal structures seem to work better. I'm trying to figure that out myself. It's tough to know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. But it, well, you know, I, just me thinking off the top of my head, um, I've done it, you know, both ways. And what I think as if I'm thinking about obviously the benefit of the back and forth is you can really get into the meat of something, get into the details. And, and when someone is saying something that you specifically have a question about, you can say, well, right there, that's the thing that I'm that I'm concerned about. You know, so there is some some something about that. 
I like formal debates, just anecdotal information about one apologist. I like the formal debates because the Christian is often, though this is not always the case, the Christian is often the one trying to set up some sort of structure and give some reason to believe a thing, which that, that involves, that you need some space for that, and uh, you, you need maybe some, some formal setup so that you can present and then come back with rebuttals and make sure of your, you, you covered the specifics of what they responded to. Whereas if you're not setting up, like say an atheist is, is doing more of a, uh, you know, like something like what Matt Dillahunty or someone might do where they're, they're more listening to what you're saying and then presenting what they see as problems with that than they are, although that's not really fair because Matt has brought uh, divine hiddenness and, and problem of evil. But I think you see what I mean. Like one of the typical ways that atheists today will will con- will function in a debate is is that is just kind of listening to what you're saying and pointing out why that doesn't doesn't work or de- or they don't think it's good enough or whatever. And the Christians got to build this formal structure. Um, I think that's got something to do with it. Yeah, I think that's so true that if you have an open discussion, you have the potential for you're trying to maybe make this broad case, like a cumulative case, kind of like a William Lane Craig 20-minute opener that he does mm-hmm. in his debates with like the Kalam, teleological, moral, resurrection argument, and then uh, the uh, properly basic beliefs, is if you start with a discussion, though, nobody's going to let you in an open dialogue talk for 20 minutes to set the whole thing up. You at right. best are maybe going to go through like the first or second premise of the Kalam, and then you're going to get into the weeds already where the atheist might say, well, I, I disagree already. And let me explain why, which in a normal conversation makes sense that you then go deeper into the weeds. But in that case, you never got to put out your whole cumulative case. You get kind of down in the weeds right away before giving this more robust and clear case for why these independent lines of converging evidence suggest Christianity. So I do. I 100 percent think that's true. And by the way, Mike Jones, I always bring up because I think independent attestation is important. Mike Jones has seen this pattern as well, where he said, yeah, Christians tend to do better with more formal statements. And I think that's probably the biggest thing is that you get stuck in the weeds before you can really lay out the whole case, because I brought it up last time, the creation evolution argument, which is a different type of argument, but nonetheless, there's a similar principle is similar to Christianity. So if let's say the, and this is why I would say, hopefully atheists can emphasize with what I'm saying here is that the Christian might say, well, here's my case. And they bring up, you know, the first point and the atheist says, oh, that's just such a terrible point. And they say, well, but give me a sec to like unpack all of it. It's not that there's this one juggernaut argument that just shows definitively that Christianity is true. It's these subtle, more subtle converging lines of evidence that by themselves are, I agree, not as strong. And same thing with if, let's say an evolution creationist argument was happening, is that sometimes creationists do this, like uh, I've seen Kent Hovind do this in the past, where he'll say, what's your best, you know, all right, everybody, what's your best line of evidence for evolution? And then they'll go, okay, well, here's my, you know, best argument. And then Kent will oftentimes appropriately, because, you know, by one single line of evidence by itself, for evolution, you say, well, it's not very compelling. That's like your best. And so in other words, I think that formal statements are the way to go. I don't know if anybody hasn't seen this yet, but there is, this is all I'm going to say about it. But I remember in, let's say, 2008 or something like that, maybe, no, before that, 2006 or seven, 
Kent Hovind went on the Ali G show with Sasha Baron Cohen. I don't know if have you seen that, James? I've seen that episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. something that people just the train spotters can go uh, maybe hunt down after this for a. Uh, yeah. Not that I endorse uh, either, you know, the Ali G show or the brand of apologetics that Kent Hovind uh, suggests. But in any case, uh, so that's one. What else you got, James? Here's another one. I I saw this recently. When it comes to the, for example, the argument for the resurrection, Christians oftentimes, I think so much of debate is using good self-control and self-regulation to not take the bait of what's being said. As an example, if a Christian says, you know, here's my case for the resurrection, and let's say they give the minimal facts type arguments, such as from William Lane Craig or Habermas Lacona, is that They'll give the argument and then the atheist will go, well, yeah, but we don't have any contemporary sources. None of those sources that you mentioned, well, there are a couple, this is the first example. They'll say none of those sources that you mentioned are contemporary with Jesus. They, they weren't written while Jesus was alive. And the atheist or the Christian oftentimes, rather than challenging the credibility of the atheist on whether or not this is an appropriate criteria, rather than just some arbitrary criteria set up by, I'm not trying to sound mean, but relative to scholars, atheist bloggers that I'm like, well, I'm going to go, if I have to choose between atheist bloggers criteria for believing in this historical case for an argument versus, or I should say for evaluating historical evidence versus scholars, obviously I'm going to go with the scholars. And so in other words, the Christian oftentimes will start saying, oh, well, let me think of some contemporary ones. They'll start trying to think of it. And it's like, no, 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 like don't fall it. Don't take that as some sort of actually necessary criteria because historians would say, oh, we don't need contemporary sources. That's not necessary right. to have strong evidence for something. You right. can have it be after the lifetime of an individual. And it can still be compelling evidence, especially if you have, again, that independent converging testimony from mm-hmm. different sources. So that's another one is that uh, Christians oftentimes will try to placate the atheists where it's, as, if the pla- as if the atheist were a credible... Uh, as if they were an authority, which is, it's just like, well, if they're naming these criteria that they themselves have just come up with, that they know (laughs) that the Bible doesn't have, and that scholars themselves wouldn't use, then I I would point that out. I'd say, wait, why are you, you seem to diverge from actual academic criteria here, and you come up with your own arbitrary criteria, and really call them on it, really go hard and say, this is just arbitrary, like, so... I, I think that's a really interesting point because, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about uh, Richard, you know, like there's a we have a wealth of better ways to answer this. Like you, you were saying, if someone bra- raised specifically that issue, well, where's the contemporaneous source during Jesus's life? And you're also right that my first thought was to go, well, you know, some people say that maybe the Q document or is the sayings material and maybe that was collected by Matthew and all, all this sort of thing. But but that's not where you go. That's not what you're right. What we can much more easily say is something like, well, look, um, Richard Bauckham has written an incredible uh, work on, um, on on issues related to this. And one thing that we can say is that these documents, some of these documents were written during the lives of the guarantors of the gospel message. Um, like when, when, when Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that, uh, that, you know, this is the gospel I preached when I was with you. But he also mentions in Galatians that, uh, you know, that he went and talked to the apostles and everything. 
But the, but the point was, he's giving them the assurance that the people who actually handled all these things that you already know about, they're, they're affirming of, what, of what's being said here. And it I, I think it seems like that uh, the Christian community at the time uh, did look to, is, is what you're saying endorsed by living apostles? Why is that not as good as or uh, a good response to something like, well, it's not contemporaneous? Well, it's contemporaneous with the people that, that initially experienced these things, right? That's a good point. So it is good to, you could say, kind of take a two-pronged approach of one saying, I, I don't accept this criteria as necessary. But even for the sake of argument, I do think we have good kind of more contemporary, uh, more contemporary, uh, contemporary close to contemporary. Yeah. types of evidence so that i agree that's a good way to go about it uh the and i would also add what i in my first response what i would have added in the first place is then citing and this is something i'd have to go back and like check my notes i haven't looked for it for a while but citing historical scholars of which they you know they would say like if we do have two independent sources that are early and by them they don't mean early as in contemporary with jesus they mean within let's say 50 years or 40 years is that you know for example like paul's epistles is that you could say hey you know we do have uh scholars that would say that just two independent sources that are early not contemporary but early that would say like that's actually as to quote craig pay dirt like that's actually like wow like we're doing really well for that field namely ancient near uh ancient near eastern history at, at that time so that would be. That's really good, but your principal point there, I guess, is don't let don't let your opponent make up criteria. <laughs> don't don't let your opponent yeah. treat their criteria as though they are the accepted criteria. Listen to what they're saying, and if what they're saying shouldn't affect your case, we'll point that out for those those reasons that you give. And you know, really, that could go both ways. I guess you could have you could have uh, a Christian. Uh, say say something that's not really good criteria for assessing a particular piece of evidence, and the atheist has to uh, has to point that out, you know. So, but that's a that's interesting. I like that one. That's that's helpful. And there's another one, just really quick before we go to the number three. But the other one would be an example of this is when they have, let's say, an empiricist approach, and they say, "Well, I'm an empiricist. Give me some empirical evidence for God," and you're like. I'm not an empiricist. I think it's silly, so I'm not going to meet your criteria. In fact, I think you're really, really pressing hard on that criteria. And as an example of that, you might use the everybody. You must remember. You've seen this probably the famous clip with William Lane Craig and Peter Atkins, where Peter Atkins, and this is like a really old school clip where Peter Atkins says, "Well, I think he, in some way, shape, or form, says, you know, we, we, I have taken this empiricist approach for my epistemology," and Craig says. Well, there are many reasons to reject that. And he gives, he rattles off the five right off the top of his head. But I'll give it to you so you can link it in the description where it was just this, it's like this epic William Lane Craig clip where yeah. he gives five exceptions to empiricism, such as, for example, I think the first one he starts with is he says, well, mathematic or logical truths, like science presupposes math and logic. And so to use science to make the case for them would be arguing in a circle, given that science already presupposes them in order to work in the first place and then he goes on and gives another four case of you could say examples where no empiricism doesn't seem to be a good epistemology so but that just really calling their standards out because oftentimes their standards are unusually high and by that i mean 
Well, let me be fair. I, because I, I do want to, they're not all atheists do this. So I want to be so fair about that. I would just, some atheists will use arbitrary standards that are arbitrarily high. I suspect because they have a bias against the supernatural. And again, that's only some atheists. So I don't want to indict all atheists. Yeah. And the third one I would bring up is that oftentimes, and this is just what it is to be human. So uh, we'll talk about these inconsistent standards that atheists themselves, just like theists, to be fair, sometimes don't hold themselves to. They don't even recognize they're violating the standard. And so, but before I talk about that, and remind me to talk about the problem of evil and how Christians are willing to Im engage with that argument. I just want to quick okay. summarize just so people know where we are, because we talked about a top five. So one, as I had mentioned, Christians are better off in structured debates. Number two was that I had mentioned that Christians have to call out standards or criteria set up by skeptics that sometimes are just silly. And three, in terms of, you could say, being consistent with yourself throughout the debate, here's an example. So if, a, if an atheist were to say, I want some empirical evidence here, and simultaneously at some point they give an argument against God's existence, let's say they use the problem of evil, there's, there's an inconsistency there in terms of kind of like how they're operating in this debate. And what I mean by that yeah. is they're using a philosophical they, so, argument. Exactly. Is that mm -hmm. they just said, like, I'm an empiricist, give me some empirical evidence for God. And then at some point, you know, maybe 45 minutes later in the discussion, then you move on to different topics and they bring up the problem of evil. And you should like, you should say, well, wait a minute, I thought you were an empiricist. Like, I'm willing to engage with you on the problem of evil, even though it's not an empiricist type argument, it's a philosophical type argument. This mm -hmm. is common that I think people just don't realize that they're not actually in accord with their own standards. Here's another example I can think of. This is if let's say you maybe started the conversation, it's probably good to just get this out of the way. You say, well, are you an evidentialist? By that, I mean, would you say that beliefs should only depend on evidence? And that, for example, you would say because people might say, of course, well, what, what else would there be? Well, like William James type arguments you could say, or like Pascal's wager would be one in which you're saying, well, I'm, I'm not believing based on evidence. In the case of Pascal's wager, you might say I'm believing because it's, you know, this wager, that, like if I get it right, you're, it's basically an argument rooted in decision theory. Oh yeah. Well, what I'm referring to in terms of like William James, I was thinking of, he gave this, so he's a psychologist who was at Harvard in the 1800s and also kind of a philosopher, kind of like a, into spiritual stuff. And he had said, I think you should believe when it kind of like increases your probability of a, a good outcome in your life. So for example, like if you're in the forest, this is his example, and you have a broken leg or what might be a broken leg and you, and like, let's say it looks really bleak where you're thinking, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to get home. I think I'm probably going to be left out here to die. You would be better off even though you maybe think the evidence says otherwise to tell yourself, like I can make it and I am going to make it. You're going to, you're better off to keep the hope you could say and tell yourself and try to believe by telling yourself against evidence, better. actually. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. You know, I and think of a great James example. I, I bet you heard the same uh, clip, James, cause we look at the same sort of stuff. Do you remember cosmic skeptic saying something about this not too long ago with respect to the Lord of the Rings, the return of the King, he was talking about a moment in the movie, uh, where 
there was every reason to believe that Frodo was dead, that they were not going to make it and, and destroy the ring, that, that it was all, there was no hope. Um, maybe at some point there was even clothes brought oh, look, they're dead, you know, and it, and against all the evidence, the evidence is we should believe based on the evidence that Frodo and Sam are dead. But, uh, but, but that actually wasn't the best thing to believe in the moment because it turns out they weren't, first of all. But secondly, uh, it motivated the, the continuing struggle, you know, to succeed and overcome. 100%. You got it exactly. So in that case, you might say, oh, okay, then, you know, I see a reason that maybe you'd believe in something, even though it's not based on evidence. It's more based on just trying to produce a better outcome for yourself. Like you're, you're trying to motivate yourself to keep going and at least keep trying. And then Pascal's wager is not quite like that, but it would be, and I'm not advocating for these types. We'll go back to the main point, mm -hmm. but Pascal's wager would be kind of like, well, you're, you're just kind of like, you're, you have to decide on something. And so, you know, you decide on the one that you think will have the best outcome for you in the, you know, kind of the eternal stretch. But going back to the, uh, I'm not trying to argue for non-evidentialist positions. I'm just trying to explain what they are. The reason being going back to that original point, namely, Sometimes people will use standards that they don't hold themselves to. And so they might say at the beginning of the conversation, I'm an evidentialist. Like I would say those other reasons are not good, the ones we just covered. However, then they may invoke let me, uh, Occam's razor, which is not an evidentialist, you could say, kind of epistemological tool. It's not. Like there's no empirical paper that has ever shown that simpler explanations are better in any field like that's not there it just doesn't exist this is an epistemologically non-evidentialist approach of preferring simpler things basically just because of their aesthetic they're just easier to like mentally grasp or they're just there's just a preference for simplicity that uh like i said almost like an aesthetic like a just like mm, it just looks nicer seems nicer it maybe it's just easier to use. That's in, in science that people might say, well, it's just easier to kind of remember and apply. But again, none of those are evidentialist criteria. And so if someone does use Occam's razor, that's a great opportunity to say, well, hold on, just to be sure, like you're not an evidentialist. So if you, let's say, wanted to make the case for Pascal's wager or Jamesian, William James type arguments, then that opens the door for you where you can say, okay, well, then good, then I'm going to use these arguments since you're, you wouldn't be close to them since you're not an evidentialist. But I'm just surprised. Occam's razor, I think, is a bit overrated because one, most people who invoke it, I think, don't even realize it's not an evidentialist criteria. So, but to summarize or to get back to the main issue of this particular point you're making is we would say just notice if they if they insist on only evidentialist type reasoning and you notice that they're not that they're using non-evidentialist uh, stuff to make their point make make their case then uh, then point that out and you're free to do the same if you're so inclined is that is that kind of what exactly. we're saying yeah a hundred percent and here's one last this is the third example because this is of we have you know the top five for the whole video and then we're on point number three of the top five, which is that sometimes people use standards that are actually inconsistent throughout the discussion. And in particular, we, you know, we, the first example, sub example, we'll say that we gave that because I'm going to give three. One is that they might be an empiricist and then later on invoke a philosophical argument like the problem of evil. 
Then right now, what we just finished talking about was, let's say they claim to be an evidentialist, but then they're using Occam's razor, which isn't an evidentialist. It's a, it's an anti-evidentialist. It's, it's different from it type of approach. And then the third one is, so let's say you're arguing about the resurrection. I've seen this before. They'll, at one point, they may say, oh, you know, uh, I don't count the Gospels or let's say the Acts. Let, let's say they say, I'll, I'll give you go the Gospels, but I won't give you Acts. I think that's written too late. And I don't know, uh, you know, I, I just don't think it's as reliable. And then maybe later in the discussion, I saw this in a Mike Winger debate with Apologia, uh, is that they'll say that, but then uh, they'll to try to invoke, uh, try to explain away Paul's experience of Christ on the road to Damascus. They'll say, you all, you know, you remember uh, his, you know, because his symptoms or what he was experiencing looked a lot like having a seizure. So, for example, you know, in Acts, when it says that he fell on the ground and that he was blinded temporarily, that looks like it kind of fits with a seizure. And I love that Mike Winger in this debate was so sharp and he was so he remembered that earlier in the debate, this atheist had said, well, I won't give you Acts. And Mike says, but isn't that from Acts? Like what you're talking about right now, about Paul falling off of Paul falling on the ground and being blinded temporarily. That's not in the Gospels and it's not in his epistles. Like you're getting that from Acts. And didn't you earlier in the debate tell me that you wouldn't count that as a credible source? So wow. it was a great example of Mike catching that was really impressive because a lot of Christians, there's just so much information going back and forth in a debate that they're not being, a lot of Christians, it, it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of self-restraint, a lot of self-control to remember, like, hey, he counts this, he doesn't count this, and then later in the debate to be able to pull that back up. Because Paul was like, he just didn't have an answer. He was just like, oh, it, it was a, <laughs> like a, just a great response from Mike. So I think if I was if I was Paul in that situation, I might say, okay, you're right, I don't. And so if you brought something from Acts, it wouldn't convince me. But you do believe in Acts, and so I'm showing you what your book says. Would what would you That's say true. in a situation like that, or would that be a good yeah, comeback? It is. I think it, that if it was said, it would have been good. And what mm -hmm. I would say is, I I don't think it does fit the, the hallucination criteria based on Acts. Yeah. So, long story short, this third point was just that not everybody's consistent throughout the debate and i don't want to invite just atheists it's i think it's often it's just accidental people don't realize it and so christians do it too i just want to be sure. i know that i sound like bragging on atheists but I, I want to be clear that there's there are plenty of sophisticated atheists and honest atheists and and many many in fact i'd say that's you know so well absolutely and and that's why with the first points uh or the second point i guess um I point, I, you know, I, I try to make the same point, you know, that, hey, look, this could go the other way. You could have an atheist frustrated that a Christian is is being inconsistent or something or whatever the other point was. So I, so I, yeah, you know, this is the channel that loves atheists, James, so we're good. That's good. <laughs> All we right, you got a number, to... you got a number four? Yeah, so let me, so some of these are a little bit like disjointed. I'm trying to figure out like what would be the, what, how would I summarize this with a broader statement? This is more of like a singular point that's just interesting. Uh, I don't know. If it, I would just say it's like a little thing that I notice is sometimes, and these are kind of low-hanging fruit now. So these are less abstract. These are like more specific little empirical claims things. So these are the ones that kind of drive me the most crazy because when I hear sometimes people say something 
and I'm like, oh my gosh, like it's just not like it's not okay. True. So future future debaters on modern day debate, just know. James is not going to stop you and make a point about this, but this is what's going through his head if you do whatever he's about to say. A hundred percent. Is I I let the other debater handle it, and an example would be like sometimes there are just you could say misleading claims, probably misunderstood by atheists themselves. But let's say they say that well, atheism is growing globally. Like, you know, we're finally seeing uh, the internet and the spread of information. That's like back 10 years ago, that used to be a more common claim. Although it's ironic because like the flat earth has become way bigger since then. So I don't know if the internet really has helped. But yeah. I would say that sometimes atheists will say, you know, like atheism is growing and, you know, there are more people that are uh, becoming atheists every day as if atheists, as if like religion was shrinking. And that's not the case because you might think, well, if atheism is growing, it has to be the case that it's kind of taking over religious territory or ground, but it's not. And here's the way in which it's true and the way in which it's false. In whole numbers, it's growing because the population is growing, but it's actually as a proportion of the globe shrinking. In other words, it's growing, but not as fast as Christianity and Islam, for example, so that actually as a proportion it's shrinking it's just that in terms of whole numbers like actual numbers like let's say the number of atheists i don't know i'm just using easy number 100 100,000 on the planet that's way more than that but it is let's say it's like yeah you know each day let's say there are 10 people added on to that 100,000 but with christianity and islam which have each maybe like 2 billion or so there's like instead of 10 being added like 50 being added so that's one thing is I've noticed that being said, and I, I just think it's worth pointing out that uh, if atheists think like, oh, yeah, the Internet and our arguments and us being out there making the case is changing things, I, I, it doesn't look like it. Maybe it's even doing worse for atheism. That's one of the smug things I see in the comments all the time. Is, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, that's a good point. In fact, uh, you would be the person to know about this. I remember. Um, I don't know, a year ago or a couple of years ago, I said the same thing. I said something like, okay, if you think, uh, if you think that because of the internet, you know, everybody's got all this access to information. And so the old myths and things are dying out and that's what we're seeing. Then how do you explain the rise in flat earth, uh, belief? And, you know, a lot of the responses were, well, you just, you're just uneducated because flat earth belief is actually on the decline. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But if it is true, it, it, it rose. I mean, I would think so. Do you actually know whether it's on the decline in general flat earth belief? Flat earth. I don't know. I, I would just like, I, I don't know if there's a study that's been done. I purely off of anecdotal, like observation of these communities online, I would suspect it's growing, but I, I could be wrong about that, but it's nonetheless, well, I mean, it, it may, may, maybe, but maybe it's not growing. Maybe it's in decline, but that doesn't mean it always was. And I have to believe when I'm looking at YouTube channels with hundreds of thousands of subscribers and armies of flat earthers, you know, making points, I have to believe that a few people got flat earth evangelized because of the internet, right? Yeah, I think that makes sense. That's why I would suspect that it's actually grown is that the internet has allowed people with weird beliefs to find each other and mm -hmm. in a way indirectly encourage each other or even directly encourage each other with these you know, Facebook groups or whatever. But I would say if it is shrinking, well, that's good. 
It's just like atheism, and both of them deserve to shrink <laughs> as a proportion. So I think that's fair. But I, I would say my source for the atheism shrinking is pure, uh, the peer review or the, uh, the, oh, the Pew, which is a peer-reviewed level type of research. So like the mm -hmm. Pew is like a very respected source that has actually found this. And it's, yeah. So I, that's Do you think I people get a little on. bit... Do you think people get a little bit provincial about this? So like, hey, I'm in the Western world, so I'm only looking at the Western world. And in the Western world, atheism seems to be growing. I, yeah, okay, maybe in third world countries or something or China, you know, maybe it's growing. But 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 where I'm at, we're winning. It's getting more secular all the time. Do you think that's how people think about this? I'm sure it is. I think that, well, my only thought is if you really want to needle them, you might press them uh, in being maybe a little bit ethnocentric in terms of only focusing on their own, you know, our Western culture mm -hmm. and say, well, globally, like it seems like Eastern people is just important. It's just as important what they believe too. Right. But I do think that, yeah, they probably would say that it's Westernized, that in the West, at least atheism is growing, which is, although again, I, I feel like it's a little bit like, it's a little bit convenient that like rather than using the globe like as if western or eastern people are like why, why should their vote or beliefs be less important it's strange to focus on one sub pocket because i'm sure you can find some pockets throughout the world where atheism is growing but nonetheless globally it's shrinking we can probably find some pockets in the u.s where where it's growing i don't know if it, how far do you want to limit this this neighborhood this county i mean <laughs> you can right. if you're yeah, going to limit it yeah yeah, if you zone in on the right spot, you can find something that corroborates your view, you know, right. no matter how weird your view is. Right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what do you have next? How do I summarize that? That would just maybe be, uh, I, I want to give one other example. I just think that there is kind of an Achilles heel sometimes. Maybe I'd, uh, I want to be fair, not all atheists, but some atheists will make empirical claims like that that are just, false another one is that like you very clearly see in these debates with like mike jones and matt dillahunty this is an old one it happened on the non sequitur show a long time ago it was a different youtube channel kind of like modern day debate and then there was also the debate with mike jones and Aaron raw on the same topic whether or not christianity or religion is harmful and the empirical evidence is so clear so I think it's 2016, Azim Sharif and other authors, this is their peer-reviewed meta-analysis, if I remember the publication date right. But I know it's for, for sure Sharif, S-H-A-R-I-F-F, uh, -F, 2016, where they did this meta-analysis of religious priming. So in other words, you'd give subtle primes, like subtle symbols that people would see, of, like let's say religious symbols, and that they tended to be more pro-social after that. Even atheist groups, in some cases, would be more pro-social after seeing this, you could say, I wouldn't say subliminal, but subtle religious symbol that people don't really realize that they saw it. So sometimes, you, like, here's an example of how you can do this. You can give them a crossword puzzle, and it's suffused with, uh, am I not, not a crossword puzzle. What's one of those, you know, where it's got like a, a big square and it's just filled with letters. It's like a word find where you. Have oh, yeah, yeah. Find it. the word word scramble. Yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. Word scramble. That's it. Yeah. Is if you give people participants a word scramble, you can suffuse it with religious terms like faith or God or church. And then you can ask them afterwards, like, did you notice anything weird about this? Like, uh, did you notice any theme behind this puzzle? And they'll say, oh, no, I didn't. So like they're seeing these and because you'll know because you'll circle, they'll, you know, they'll find some of those words like church or whatever. and They'll circle them. So that they were seeing them versus a, a word scramble that has no religious words in it, just more neutral words like chair, things that really you wouldn't have reason to believe would make them more pro-social or less pro-social. Anyway, when they do see these religious words without even really realizing that they're kind of being primed toward religion or thinking about religion, they tend to be more pro-social in terms of their behavior. In other words, like giving behaviors, giving to others. And that's something that you've seen, I'm just going to say, you know, if you want to watch Mike Jones's debates, he, he's done very well, especially because it's so annoying, too, that here's another thing that sometimes I see in debates is people will go, well, I have studies, too. And so, you know, I have a couple of studies here that say that religion in some way caused more negative behavior. And I think Tom Jump, to be fair, in his most recent debate with Arne Ra on this topic of whether or not religion is harmful, and Mike Jones have done a good job of saying, you have one or two studies. I have a meta-analysis, which is basically a like a weighted average of many studies. Sometimes, oftentimes, 30 is kind of like you need at least 30 studies in it. But sometimes they can have like 70 or 100 or hundreds. Mm -hmm. And so I want to give kudos to Tom Jump and Mike Jones, because Tom Jump actually argued in favor of religion, namely saying like, no, it doesn't do more harm than good. It actually is pretty good for society. And so I want to give kudos to those guys for kind of staying on the ball and saying, okay, good, you've got these. My meta-analysis is summarizing 102 studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you so and, and of course the distinction between that, that I remember coming up in a lot of those debates is the extrinsic versus intrinsic religious person. So there's a difference between a nominal Christian who goes to church twice a year or occasionally and might say they're a Christian and they believe these things or might say they're a Muslim and they believe these things. But functionally, it doesn't really seem like they do. And if you pin them down, they might not, you know, something like that versus someone like me or you who, whether we're a good person or not, we're at least saying no. Like we think that personal conversion is very important. We think that uh, we attend church. You know, I think they say on average three times a month. And, and when you look at those two, because a lot a lot of times when people say, well, I, I know that about these horrible things Christians have done. Well, yeah. I, and it may sound like. Uh, um, the no true Scotsman or something, but there really is like a distinction in the literature about someone who is, you know, nominally a, a religious person or not. And I think that that's important. I took that away from those debates and those are really enjoyable uh, debates. That's a great point. I want to add that too, in terms of like these empirical claims where sometimes I hate to say this is not all atheists, but some atheist circles online, they're just living in their own world. Like, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Some, not all, but some, they just seem to have their own reality. And so another example is I see, like, in the comments sometimes, if a Christian is moody during the debate, they go, oh, man, why are Christians always so unhappy? And this came up in Mike Jones's debate on which group is more happy, religious or non-religious. If a person is intrinsically religious, namely that they're actually living, they're, they're saying, hey, I'm, I'm religious and I'm living for God. Like, I want God to be my main purpose in life. 
versus extrinsically religious, they're maybe like, well, I go to church because it helps me have a strong community network. It's like, well, it's like you could do that at a book club too. It's not very religious per se. Is that those who are intrinsically religious are definitely happier. It's like the, the data is absolutely clear. And that's which you could say it seems to be like the truer form of religion, like I said, because you're, you're saying I'm, I've lived for God rather than building a community network that you could do in non-religious circles too. And so you could say like the truer form of religion, the empirical data there too, the meta-analyses have been done. Religion, uh, religious people are happier. Like the evidence is so clear. And I see comments all the time from, like I said, there are some atheists that I think live in their own reality. It, it, like genuinely, they, they're so self, maybe purposely, maybe on accident, they're so deceived that they're like, oh man, these religious people are miserable. And, you know, and by the way, there's also not only that in terms of life satisfaction measures for religious people, uh, they also tend to have, and I, I wouldn't say that you're like not religious if you, if you ever experienced depression or anxiety or whatever, but nonetheless, they you put it this way. Let's say a religious person has depression and anxiety, which it happens, obviously. Sure. And so someone says, well, are you not religious? And you'd say, well, like I am religious, like. I, but according to the research, if I was not religious, I'd be even more depressed. But that's what the research shows. In other words, people who are intrinsically religious, especially, the more religious they are, the less depression they have, the less anxiety they have. Virtually every... So let me go back really quick, too. If you look at the big five traits, which is kind of like the conventional... I had mentioned conventional model of personality among psychologists, like Jordan Peterson's talked about this a lot is neuroticism, which is not, uh, it's not actually a mental health disorder or anything. It's just a trait of having more negative emotion is also lower among those who are high in religiosity. There's a correlation, in other words, an indirect one or an inverse one, where the more religious you are, the less neurotic you are. And like I said, neurotic is just not depression, not anxiety. It's just proneness to fear, anger, sadness. And so there are some things that I'm just, I see in the comments and I'm like, these people just seem to be in their own world. It's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it is really interesting. You have to, you know, we have to, and I'm not saying this about any particular person, but husbands, wives, kids, students, employees, people in various positions like atheist, Christian, Muslim, whatever. We, we have to build a way of thinking about um, our position in the world and we, we have to think about, you know, well, why, why, why are they this way? Why am I this way? Why, why are, why are all these things? And, um, we have to build a just so story, I think. And sometimes those just so stories can be false. Those, I know a bunch of mean Christians who are hateful toward gay people and hateful toward, you know, whatever. And, and, and we have in our picture in our mind of the old angry white man at a Baptist church somewhere. And, and of course that's true sometimes. <laughs> and so as a result, we build this just so story in our mind about the way somebody is and they're not happy. They're mad all the time. They're these Christians are always against everything. And I think it can happen to me too, that sometimes what we build into our just so story, it doesn't reflect reality, even if it may seem to help us feel better about our situation. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. So that was the fourth point, which you might say like some circles and like I said, very, very much some, just some, because I'm going for low hanging fruit here. Yeah. Our imperial, like you could say their own empirical claims are just false. Like, and the last one might be 
this is, uh, again, I'm trying to think of what, what would a broad one be. So let me just review just because I always like it to have it be nice and tidy. Of like yeah. the first point was, and you might need to help me with this because my in terms of my working memory, trying to remember all this. The first one. If, if we I come up with good right, ways to say it, I'll put them on the screen so people listening already know whether it, whether I thought it was clear or not. <laughs> the first one was, if I remember right, oh man, formal versus <laughs> informal debates. Oh yes, you're right. Structured debates are better for theists generally. I'm not saying it has to be that way. Then number two, if I remember right, was these arbitrary standards sometimes used by atheists where, you know, for example, they'll say, well, we don't have any contemporary sources about Jesus, in which case you can cite uh, what I was going to say earlier was John Dominic Crossan. I think he's passed away, but was a scholar, an atheist scholar even that said two independent sources is quite strong, even if they're early but not contemporary. Mm -hmm. And Number three, if I remember right, that was, so we talked about, I think that was, uh, oh yeah, so we talked, number two was arbitrary standards, kind of acting as an authority and creating these standards. Inconsistent, inconsistency. Inconsistency in terms of, for example, at one point saying one's an evidentialist then invoking Occam's razor later or saying you're an empiricist but using the problem of evil later. And then the last one that we just covered, number four, was the empirical claims are sometimes just flat out false, where for me, working on my doctorate in psychology, sometimes I hear these and I know like how this, the examples we covered, like the social sciences, I know the kind of errors that are being made there. And I'm like, okay, this is so this is bad. And then number five, this is one that's hard. It's just like a, I, I would maybe just say in some, if you push back on some of these like low hanging fruit arguments, they're so bad and Christians do it too. So I'm not just, I'm, I'm not trying to stereotype when I say that atheists use these, some arguments that are so bad. So hopefully there are atheists out there who realize like, I'm not trying to paint with broad brushstrokes across the atheist community. I'm just trying to pick on like some of the stuff that has to go. It's just so bad. And hopefully they agree with me and they say, James, I, I'm an atheist that doesn't use those arguments you've mentioned, but, uh, and so this doesn't bother me that you point these things out and I agree with you that they have to go. And just the same way I would conceive some Christians use bad arguments. Last one, as an example of how bad some of these are, if someone says, well, you know, these Christians like, oh, they think that their religion is the true one. How convenient. Like, oh, but, but all the other ones happen to be wrong. It's just their special one. Is that, in other words, like picking on Christianity's exclusivity and saying like, oh, you, you think only your view is right. Okay. But as Craig has pointed this out, great. He's done a great job of pointing out the atheist is no more, or I should say no less exclusive than the Christian. In other words, if you think about it, atheists also say everybody except those who hold their position of namely the idea that there is no God is wrong. So they also say that the Muslim is wrong. They also say that the Jewish, uh, you say classical or what's the word? Uh, Orthodox. Orthodox Jewish, they would say the Orthodox Jewish people are wrong and the Muslims are wrong and the Hindus are wrong. Is that not only would we say, well, wait a minute, like atheists also say that they're the only correct position, but not only that, in pure numbers, it's actually atheists that are even more exclusive. And let me explain, is that Christians have about two, like, and this is like whether or not there's genuine belief in these Christians is a different issue. But in terms of like intellectual assent, you could say, like where they say, yeah, I agree that 
you know, God is, God exists and Jesus is the son, like, is that there are about almost 2 billion, if I remember right, people on the planet that would say yes, like, I agree with that. So Christians would be saying, admittedly, like a lot of people are wrong, namely, like, what are we at? Seven or eight billion. Let's just use seven. For, is, you know, they'd be saying like five billion are wrong because they're not Christians. But if you look at it in terms of numbers, well, atheists are way less than two billion. I mean, maybe, like I said, like, let's say, let's be super generous and say that they make up a billion. Well, then compared to the Christian who says that five billion are wrong, the atheist says that six billion are wrong. So in other words, like, it's absolutely the case that the atheist is actually more exclusive than the Christian and nonetheless, hypocritically, kind of pointing fingers like this. Yeah. And that, again, this is like low hanging fruit stuff. So I don't want to. Right, right, right. But yeah, that's it in a nutshell. That's pretty, that's that pretty, pretty interesting, because really what it all boils down to, James, is we're, is the, when you say, oh, how convenient or you, you know, you're so special that your religion happens to be the right one of all the religions. Hold on. All you're saying there is, oh, you think you're right. Yes. <laughs> and you think you're right, right? And there's and and you're saying a lot more people are wrong than I'm saying are wrong is your point, right? Oh yeah, exactly. Is that the atheist like assuming that there are classical atheists that would say, you know, God does not exist, then like they're actually saying way more people are wrong in terms of pure numbers, like mm -hmm. persons out there than I am. And it's just so in other cases, it's hypocritical that they'd be trying to uh, indict me for it when actually classical atheism is even more exclusive. Yeah, man, that's a good list. I like that. Um, I think this will be helpful. And maybe when you notice new ones, we'll have you back on and talk about new, uh, new insights that you have. We could do one. I mean, I, I noticed that, you know, we, we made appropriate uh, connections that this most of this could be done by a Christian, not just an atheist. But um, I'd be happy for you to come on and and specifically talk about. Here's what I think Christians do wrong, um, or I don't understand why they do it, or whatever. You know, just like that. That'd be perfectly fine as well. So, well, I'll tell you, James. I'm glad that we've kind of started chatting and talking about some of this stuff. This is really great. Um, last night, last night you had a debate, or yesterday? Maybe. I think it was Tuesday. We're on Thursday Bosch? now, so two days ago. Oh, that was like Saturday, maybe. Oh, Bosch okay. versus Sanvi. Yeah, that was a great debate. That one, people love that. I need to go back and finish that when I started. It got about halfway through. But um, but thanks for everything you're doing, man. Is there anything you want to say about all of this um, while you're here? Oh, yeah. Well, we'd love to have you at Modern Day Debate, folks, if you enjoy debates. In fact, that's the thing, too, is we're, we we want strong Christian debaters. And I sometimes worry that sometimes people see, because it's true, like sometimes the same way that there are, I pointed, I kind of picked on atheists today, there are sometimes not so strong atheist type arguments or not so experienced atheist debaters. Likewise, there are some less experienced Christian debaters and we want strong Christian debaters. So I hope you feel, I'm at moderndaydebate at gmail.com. And so there are many Christians that I have to reach out to and say, hey, we'd love to have you on. But I would like to have people reach out to me to feel comfortable to say, like, hey, you know, like I, I'd be willing to. And we really do want to give everybody a fair shot. Christian, atheist, you name it. We do want to be as fair as possible. We hope people feel welcome. I know that our audience in the comments section would make you think we're an atheist channel because it's just dominated by atheists running campaigns for their side saying that they won. But 
we're actually a neutral channel. And so, you know, we let people say what they want, you know, if they want to yeah. use them as true or whatever. But we it do might tell you Christian something if you have to run around telling everyone how they should think about the debate that just happened right in front of them. <laughs> exactly. That's what I like. I'm amazed that some of these comments are just so simple as like, oh, man, so and so dominated. And yeah. uh, I'm just like, if it's so obvious that, you know, atheism won, you know, atheism destroyed religion again. Like, if it's so obvious, why are like people taking their precious time to like sit and like write this into the comment section? But um we would love to have new people at Modern Day Debate, and I'm at moderndaydebate.gmail.com. Well, one thing I've noticed in this, James, in last week's discussion with you and this week is you are much more knowledgeable about, um, you know, uh, philosophy of religion, apologetics, broadly speaking, than I thought you were. I thought you were knowledgeable. I thought you were above average, but uh, you you are speaking with clarity and specificity about a number of things um, and of course, you know that about yourself. I, I didn't realize the degree to which you are and in talking with you that you are a good apologist in your own right. I remember um, some years ago, maybe two years ago or something, someone didn't show up for a debate and you ended up debating Pascal's wager, which you don't even defend uh, uh, based on today's discussion and uh, against T-Jump. And so for you to have to fill in for somebody against T-Jump. That's a weird person to debate uh, for, for your first time debating on Modern Day Debate. Was that the first time on Modern Day Debate you debated somebody? It might have been. That was a long, that was like in our first year. So that was like four uh, or more years ago when, yeah, the network wasn't as big. And so sometimes if, you know, and in that case, if an atheist or a, if a Christian didn't show up, I was like, all right, well, it's like I'm going to jump in and just <laughs> wing it. So. But wow. yeah, I definitely enjoy these topics. So it's, it's yeah. a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, I'm glad. And your your background in psychology is, I'm sure, incredibly helpful and, and in the future will be helpful as you um, function in this realm and perhaps minister in this realm, even though, to remind everyone, it is a neutral debate platform. Even though James is a he's a Christian, though. You can't have him back. He's, he's one of us. But... Uh, Brotherhood of Man, it's a great channel that we have on Modern Day Debate. Everybody there is treated very well. Um, yeah, of course, there's people in the comments that, that might act up a little bit. But um, I, I really think that, that even among some theists and atheists, there's a little bit of a community around it. And so um, that's good, too. 100%. That We do hope for that. My hope is there's a good, there's a, and that's why I want to give credit. Like I said, there are atheists who don't use the arguments I've used today and they don't they make the mistakes I've used today who are pleasant and intellectually honest. And in fact, I, I'd say that's the majority of atheists that are out there. Uh, it's just that some, you know, like where sometimes I'm, I'm a little bit like, OK, uh, but, real quick. I keep thinking of a couple of things I want to ask you. Uh, William Lane Craig, you've never had him on to debate, right? We haven't, no. Is that is that like the the cup of Christ is to get him to debate? That's your MacGuffin? That's the holy grail. We would, it would be epic to have William Lane Craig. We've reached out to him before, yeah. and he's such a busy guy. And uh, so they basically they were very polite and said, "Hey, we're sorry we could, but right now he's working on this new book or whatever." And so, uh, like I, but yeah, he's my favorite apologist. I've met him once in person. This is like eight or nine years ago, mm -hmm. uh, maybe ten, and it was uh, yeah, just a fantastic guy. In addition to the fact that he's. I think the best defender there is alive today. Yeah. 
Well, maybe one day you'll get him on there. Listen, man, it's been a blast having you. And to everyone else, we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.